0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. On a first glance, you'd think that Isaiah is out of his mind. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. But the serpent, its food shall be tussed. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. Now, I'm new to the South, but I think this is one of those moments where one might say, Bless his heart. He's a dreaming little idealist, but he means, Well, bless Isaiah's heart. Come on, really? Vegetarian wolves, vegan lions, and snakes safe zones. Elsewhere, he writes, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Grizzlies graving with the bovines, puppies and cubs in a snuggly heap, lions eating hay, surely this is but a fantasy. Scholar Stacy Duke puts it this way. These pictures strike us. Because they are so rare. If every lion took care of baby antelopes, it would not be news. Likewise, Isaiah's animal parade seems remarkable because of its absurdity wolf with lamb, leopard with kid, calf and lion, cow and bear, and little children playing without fear, even snakes eating dust. Is this a prophecy or a fairy tale? Indeed, Isaiah's declaration stands in direct contrast to the terror and the brutality that pervade our world and inform our lives. So I wonder, can we take Isaiah seriously here? Sure, we like the keep the sheep cuddling with lions, fangs and claws and hooves all together. It makes for a great Christmas panorama. Can't you just see the snowflakes fluttering and the twitter of mega mall muzak playing in the background? But what of a complicated world with unhinged people controlling stupendous weapons? Do the fluffy critters hold up to that cold reality? Can we take the promises of God that Isaiah proclaims for us seriously? Friends, Isaiah knew exactly what he was talking about. The book of Isaiah comes from a brutal time in Judah's history the writers of Isaiah knew exactly how bad the world could be. They advised warrior kings, and they watched unspeakable slaughter. Without question, the major historical event that shadows this text and many others in the Old Testament was the Assyrian invasion of the 8th century B.C. The army destroyed, they laid waste, they desecrated the entire city of Jerusalem. Leaving houses and markets in rubble, burning and salting what they could not break, brutally demolishing the holiest place in all of Israel, the temple. Then they took as many Israelites as they could capture and they dragged them into exile in Babylon, where they stayed in slavery for generations. The first song of Isaiah, which we sang this morning as the gradual hymn, gives voice to the exiles in Babylon. They are stuck in lament, far from home, and yet. This stunning text gives voice to a hope not yet realized. It's similar to the freedom songs and the spirituals that the enslaved people of this country sang. Steal away, steal away, steal away to Jesus. It was a code song to escape slavery. It combined God's promise of freedom with instructions, directions, a map to undermine injustice. The song even adopts the language of the oppressor, indicating that a person could be considered stolen because they could be considered property, to show you that God wants us to break unjust laws. So do not miss the liberation thread in these texts. They long for a freedom not yet arrived. Indeed, they proclaim it. They name God's dream for this world, which is a preferred and promised future, a just peace for all of God's children that many have called God's project. And then these texts promise to work for it. The first 11 chapters of Isaiah detail the pain of exile in Babylon. And that's where the power of the first song of Isaiah, which we read in chapter 12, comes to light. Because the song is written in the future tense. Isaiah writes, On that day you will say. And then we hear the majestic promises, many drawn from the Psalms. Surely it is God who saves me. Shout aloud and sing for joy. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And this is an important image for a desert people. You can imagine them standing on the sand with hand-dug holes and buckets on ropes in a parched desert as far as you can see. So to Isaiah's crowd, a well was a promise of life. Even more, the image of a well that would not dry up, that would provide saving waters, this image would churn with possibility like rapids. This was a promise that would get your attention. Indeed, God will earn our trust and we will have no need to fear for on that day we will say, the Lord is my strength and my might. God has become my salvation. I'd like to pause for a moment to return to that opening question. This all sounds really good, right? But can we take Isaiah seriously? Is he offering cheap promises, fairy tales? Or does he offer instead... Something that we dare trust, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, cling to. The first song of Isaiah happens way back in chapter 12. And it longs for a time when exile would end. And by the time we get to Isaiah 65, generations later, the people have returned to Jerusalem. They've been back, actually, for about two generations, and they have a mess on their hands. The city still lays in ruins. You could walk the streets and see the scars of war. Markets still reek. Houses still crumble. Wells still can't be trusted. The temple is a tragic and distant memory. Fights erupt daily around how and where worship should happen if there's not a temple. And yet again, Isaiah proclaims God's majestic power in the face of despair. Bless his heart. Who is he? Can we take him seriously? Can we trust these promises? Isaiah gives voice to the promises of God. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. God is not taking us back to the Garden of Eden here. This is no psychedelic trip to a mystery fairyland. God seeks the welfare of the city. This one, in your zip code. Jerusalem, you see, stands in for the welfare of all human communities. And this is where God promises new heavens and a new earth. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days, or an old person who does not live out a lifetime, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. As our very own Martha Stern observes, there is nothing in all of creation or in anything that we can imagine that is beyond the capacity of God to change. For people mired in regret or loss or sin. For people ground down by oppression and the pain of living in bondage. What a message. Nothing is final. Everything is up for grabs in the mystery of the creative capacity of God. Isaiah is not talking about good fortune coming to a person here or a family there. Rather, God's joy is in creating the new and beautiful city. And this holy joy will be reflected in the lives of all people because, as she says, Jerusalem stands in for the well-being of all communities everywhere. And here we must draw a stark contrast between what the Bible actually says and what passes for preaching in some corners. You might have heard of a prosperity gospel claiming that God wants you to be rich. They'll usually say blessed and then rich, and then give us your money. (laughs) It's true. You can find it all over the internet right now. That your project is really about you, and you can forget everybody else. But this heresy flies in the face of biblical thought taken as a whole. Isaiah could not be more clear. God's vision for a new heavens and a new earth extends to every last person in the city. So we are called to respond to God's abundance and grace and then to work with every fiber of our being guided by the Holy Spirit and with God's help to build that peaceable kingdom here and now. And whether that happens through Threads or Covenant Community or Midtown Assistance or from your interactions with the neighbors God will bless you with on your walk this week, we are given a vision, and it is God's, It is a preferred and promised future, the project of God rooted in the unconditional love shown to us in the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Yet there's a paradox at work in Isaiah's text this morning. We're told to trust in the promises of God, a new heaven and a new earth. Surely it is God who saves me. To hold out hope for the yet unrealized new heavens and new earth. But this hope is not intended for the sofa, or the couch, or the armchair, or even the pew. This hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. It is an audacious hope that calls us to work, to partner with God for the future God promises and prefers. And on a first glance, you'd think Isaiah is out of his mind. Bless his heart. But in the final analysis... We dare not believe in anything else. Barbara Kingsolver gets it right. The very least you can do for your life is to figure out what you hope for. And the most you can do is to live inside that hope. Not admire it from a distance, but live in it, right under its roof. Amen.